welcome to the second part of our bumper double special edition of Revolutionary double Dispatches. Special. Double spooky special, it is Halloween. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. And we're back after what has been not too long for us, but may have been a while for you. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you maybe you came back to this episode an hour or two later, mm. a day or two later. It may well be that you choose not to listen to this until after the election, so that the anticipation doesn't like, kill you. Yeah. Um, if, so If it is after the election, then, oh dear, oh dear, that was bad, wasn't it? Or possibly, alternatively, oh dear, that was also bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but slightly less so. Possibly less so. Yeah, so um, really there's there's one big topic when it comes to American politics right now, but there there is a second one, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. Mm. As a chaser. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, um, a little while ago, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, long-serving Supreme Court justice, died uh, of cancer. Now, the way Supreme Court positions work in the US is that they are for life unless you resign early. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't, in fact. She was working from hospital right up until pretty much the moment of her death. Now, the last time Supreme Court justice died, it was uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, and he died back during the Obama administration. Uh, But the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell basically decided that they weren't going to allow Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, to be confirmed. Um, this time, with Ginsburg's death, even though she died much closer to the election, Scalia died back in sort of January time, um, they've decided to forge ahead. It's worth saying also that the, the Senate Republicans said that if a Democrat were to win the presidency, they would continue the entire four-year term. Oh, huh. Oh well, yeah, we'll get to, we'll we'll get to that, but uh, but yeah. Um, so, despite the fact that Ginsburg died much closer to the election than Scalia had, and therefore, arguably the Republicans' argument from before, which at the time was completely spurious, would have had some validity. They, shockingly to everyone concerned, completely reversed course and decided that they had to confirm a new nominee. Uh, to the Supreme Court, post haze quickly, 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 damn it. Haven't you seen the poll? Joe Biden's going to win. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get a right-winger on there before tea time. And despite the fact that it had never been done before, uh, the, the, the record for confirming a Supreme uh, Court justice to court was actually slightly longer in terms of number of days than the amount of time remaining before the election. Mm-hmm. So it had never been done in this quickly before, but uh, the other day, the Republicans succeeded in confirming Amy Coney Barrett to be the newest justice. It's quite something. Yet bad um, is what it is. really bad. Because where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the second most liberal justice on the court, behind only Justice Sotomayor, Amy Coney Barrett, according to analysis of her appeals court record, is probably the third most conservative behind um, Thomas and Alito. Now, obviously, she hasn't been on the Supreme Court before, so that is subject to change somewhat, um, depending on how she fits into the new court. But based on her previous judgments as an appeals court judge, um, that's roughly where she fits in. So this swings the balance of the court significantly. Yes. This isn't a small change, you know. This is this is big stuff. And the Supreme Court in the American context has a lot of power. It's, a, it's not actually in the Constitution that it has this power, but what it's ended up with, which is basically that... According to the interpretation of the Constitution of the people who are on that court, they can then strike down pretty much any law passed by Congress. 
it's worth saying that this isn't quite the same thing as judicial review in the UK. We have a similar thing here, but but in the UK context, the the Supreme Court can only can only say that something is incompatible with the Human Rights Act, for example, and refer it back to Parliament. They can't actually strike the law down hmm. in the same way that they can in the well, states. We have no distinction. No, not as such. No, certainly not. We have a few pieces of legislation that function as constitutional. Right, one, yeah. but it, but it, yeah, quite right. It it doesn't have any more. It doesn't have any stronger foundation than the rest of the law. It could be repealed by a simple majority right, in the House yes. of Commons, just as easily as any other act. Yeah. So yeah, Co- Coney Barrett's confirmation is is really big news because, so previously the situation on the court was that so uh, at the beginning of Donald Trump's term, of course, you had. You had a vacancy where Scalia was, and he was pretty conservative. And then you had you had a few conservatives, a few liberal justices, and then in the mi- and then in the middle you had a guy called Anthony Kennedy. Um, when when Neil Gorsuch was eventually confirmed to take the position that was vacated by Scalia, that made Kennedy the midpoint of the court. And he was a Republican nominally, but very moderate compared to sort of modern Republicans. Um, and he reasonably often, although this can be a little exaggerated, I think, but he reasonably often would side with them. Then when Kennedy died, he was replaced by Kavanaugh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. I'm sure we all remember that particular mm. nightmare of a confirmation process. Kavanaugh, significantly to the right of Kennedy, and so that pulled the court balance right, so that now the swing justice is a guy called John Roberts, who is actually the supreme the Supreme Justice? Da, da. No, <laughs> uh, the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So he's the boss, basically. And he became the Swing Justice. He was to the right of Kennedy, but he was also the Chief Justice, so he had some he had some uh, other constraints working on him. Basically, he didn't want to look like he was being too partisan because that might make him look bad and it might make the court as a whole look bad and he was quite concerned. He's quite concerned. He's still alive. I'm talking about him as if he's mm. dead. Uh, he's quite concerned with the reputation of the court going sort of into the long term. As a chief justice, might be any judgment that is made by the court while Roberts is chief justice will go down as a Roberts court judgment. So his name's going to be on the thing. With the death of Ginsburg and the confirmation of Comey Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh is now the... <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember... Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, more than simply the fact that he was elected, he was elected, he was confirmed rather to the Supreme Court despite being accused of rape by a former classmate. Um, but in case you don't remember anything other than that, and I wouldn't blame you, he's pretty conservative. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's one of these sort of um, Brett Kavanaugh is one of these sort of Federalist Society types. Um, the Federalist Society being a a, a sort of a legal, um, a conservative legal scholarship group that sort of put out these lists of judges they consider kind of proper conservatives mm. uh, in an attempt to sort of influence Republican um, governors and presidents into picking. And Trump has done this pretty consistently, uh, not just for his Supreme Court judges. He, 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 he consistently picks Federalist Society type people. So this puts the court in a really quite dangerous place because calming down the track we have uh, one of the first cases after the election um, a review of the Affordable Care Act Obamacare. There's also a good chance that coming down the track will be um, state um, abortion laws restricting abortion and in a situation where Brett Kavanaugh is the swing justice we are relying on someone pretty conservative to, to, to swing and side with the liberals. 
Yep. And the US Supreme Court can have an enormous amount of power. There's something I heard about, which I can't remember the name of now. Um, but it was an era of when they had a very right-wing court throughout the late 1900s and early 20th century, only really ended with FDR, where because in the Constitution they have a you have a right to um, to a, a, a mutual contract between private citizens that the government can't intervene in, they interpreted that to mean that huge areas of government regulations of workers' rights of of the right to a union. Like, um, loads of basic workers' rights were just completely impossible for Congress or the President to do anything <laughs> in huge areas of what we consider to be normal, politically contentious territory for how the economy should work. Yeah, and as you say, this only really came to an end uh, with uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, the Democratic President in the 1930s, uh, New Deal, vaguely socially democratic economic reforms in order to try and ameliorate the worst effects of the Great Depression. Mm. Um and the Supreme Court was trying to strike... Well, he was, they were striking down everything or threatening to. And in the end, he decided to do something called court packing, um, which is a somewhat pejorative term because the number of justices on the court isn't fixed in Constitution. It's within the gift of Congress. Congress um, gets to decide how many justices are on the Supreme Court. And there haven't always been nine... In fact, I think at one, I think initially there were only seven, and then at one point it got up to like eleven or something. There've been nine for a while, uh, over a hundred years, but they haven't always. And um, Roosevelt decided he was going to try and pack the court and add extra justices to balance out the, or more than balance out the conservative justices on the court, such that they wouldn't be able to strike down his legislation anymore. He actually failed in so doing. Uh, members of his own party. Because um, at the time the Democrats had quite a substantial conservative um, Democratic caucus, mostly from the South, sort of refused to go along with this. But the threat of doing so made the Supreme Court sufficiently worried that they backed down. Hmm. It's a little bit like how um, the how the supremacy of the House of Commons in Parliament was established, the yeah. Parliament Act, um, which is obviously very difficult to do because the House of Lords would have to pass it as well. <laughs> the idea mm-hmm. that the House of Lords can't block legislation that's been passed by the Commons. Um, that was achieved by threatening to pack the House of Lords with hundreds of new liberal lords. Um, but they didn't actually have to do it because the threat was enough, again, in that case. That was, that was back in the, around the turn of the last century. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the confirmation of it, well, in, even in the run-up, brought up a lot of these debates again. Uh, a lot of the Democrats are thinking, you know, should we pack the court? Um, or indeed, should the role of the court be such such as it is. Because a lot yeah. of countries have constitutions and supreme courts, but they don't all have the same power to intervene in politics and the decisions of elected in the state structure as the American. And also, and so, it has this power to strike down legislation not because it's in the constitution. So that could be changed by an act of Congress. It could. And so this is really the debate that's been going on within a lot of democratic circles, is should we, should we pack the supreme court, should we add extra justices? Should we reform the Supreme Court such as we, for example, bring in term limits for judges? Or should we, as you say, pass some kind of act of Congress which limits the scope of the court's authority so that it doesn't have this sort of huge amount of power that it has over the decades and centuries since it was originally uh, implemented? I think the, the main reason um, why it's, it's unreasonable for it to have this much power is that it's not elected. If you're going to be in a democratic society, then 
the centres of power, particularly the centres of power if you have the kind of power which allows you to set the political direction of state policy. That that kind of power can't be in the hands of unelected parts of the state. Mm. I don't think there's also a question of whether any single organ of the state should have as much power as the Supreme Court oh, yeah, does, regardless of whether they're elected. I mean, the president's elected. The president of the United States is elected, but, but should the president, for example, have the authority to, to uh, veto congressional legislation? I think there's actually a good argument to suggest that perhaps they shouldn't. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's, this is a strong argument that I've heard from some on the American left, that there is nothing which is quite the equivalent of a parliament in the American system. The closest thing is Congress, but it's missing a few things. Um, but particularly the House of Representatives is the only directly elected part of the um, of the American system which functions on a properly democratic basis, really, because the presidency has the the um, uh, the electoral college, and the Senate is wildly twenty million people have the same amount of a hundred thousand people, depending on what state they're from. <laughs> um, so the legitimacy of the American system comes from a mandate from the people, and the only institution which has a proper full-blown mandate from the people is the House of Representatives. So that should be the seat of where political direction... Uh, that's an argument that I've heard. Um, mm-hmm. And that it, therefore, has the authority to limit the power of the other branches, including the Supreme Court. Yeah. If it doesn't have the power, then it certainly has the authority to. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think part of the problem with packing the court would be that the problem is then as soon as the Republicans get power back in Congress, they'll just pack back. Right, and then you yeah, end up yeah, with this totally. sort of this sort of reciprocal tug of war thing. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad idea if you do it in concert with other things. I think on its own, it's certainly insufficient. Mm. Um, term limits, I think, in theory, would be a good idea, but as I say, that would require a constitutional amendment, yeah. which in the states requires um, not only Congress and the president to agree, but also two-thirds of the state legislatures, which I just can't see happening for anything right now like they they haven't uh, managed to pass the the amendment uh, whatever it is 26th amendment or whatever the one that would would give formal gender equality yeah uh, they still haven't managed to pass that and that's been going for what 60 years mm-hmm. and that's still still languishing in in, in the sort of uh, pending queue so i i just can't see them getting anything done by that route um which might suggest that maybe having such a rigid constitution <laughs> is maybe not a good idea that's the idea I mean, many of the founding fathers would have agreed. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. they weren't of the treated with this level of kind of almost quasi-religious reverence. They thought that it should be changed quite a lot. And, and they did. Yeah. You know. <laughs> he amended it quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, but there just weren't as many states then, so it wasn't as difficult. Sure, I've seen this thing about Thomas Jefferson thought that essentially each new generation should basically rewrite the Constitution entirely themselves. I have heard people argue similar things yeah. um, more recently. Um, there's a guy called Benjamin Studebaker, who I may have mentioned before, who... Um, he had this idea, I think he's somewhat bad at it now, but he had this idea called Sophiarchism, where he was, it was, it was some, basically he read Plato's Republic at too formative an age, and it uh-huh. slightly fucked with his head. Um, a lot of his other stuff is much better, but there was an interesting core of the idea, which was part of this idea, was um, was that you would have a, a, a new constitutional settlement written, um, I think he said everything, I don't know, it doesn't particularly matter what particular time scale you put on as long yeah. as it's reasonably frequent but i defi- frequently I'm definitely every 300 years <laughs> yeah i mean i'm definitely pro that idea i think we desperately in need of a constitutional convention in this country and i think the, the do, united yeah. states probably ought to have a new one as well yeah um but yeah i, I think i think personally it's going to be a combination of things that the democrats are going to need to do 
um, I think definitely court packing as a short-term solution is not a bad one. But I think they also need to look at tackling the power of the court itself. Yeah, yeah. I think as you say, take the the um, the perspective that the current status of the Supreme Court is a very problematic one. It shouldn't have that status, and so all tools available that can be used to try to fix that, uh, whether it's packing or whether it's passing a constitutional, uh, an act, sorry, an act. Uh, that limits the power of the court or anything anyone can come up with should adopt the, mm-hmm. the overall direction that this court is broken it shouldn't be like this um, we are taking up the democratic as where we'll take on and I don't really know what the democrats would do like, what's the alternative other than doing that just have every act of every piece of legislation they try to pass struck down for the next however many years it is yeah I mean Coney Barrett is very young yeah, she's a very right. junior judge she, she was only um She's only an appeals court judge for three years. This is another thing. It's like, like quite apart from the fact that this is really dangerous and the sort of uh, hypocrisy of the Republicans, she's also very inexperienced. Mm. Um, which is, I, I, you know, it's certainly not the, the biggest black mark against her. The biggest black mark against her. She's extremely conservative yeah. and has consistently voted to attack the rights of immigrants, poor people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like the fact that she's so inexperienced is, I think, a point worth bringing up. Um, it demonstrates the fact that Trump that it's a political appointment. Yeah, and therefore the yeah, court is already politicised. So recognising yes. the fact that it is and taking it on on that basis is legitimate. Because that's what the Republicans yes. will say: is that if, if the Democrats try to do this, they'll say, "Oh, we're just trying to, you know, obey the law. We're we're, uh, we're appointing judges that are, when it obviously is." Of course, yeah. I mean, they they you know, Coney Barrett calls herself a sort of strip textualist, right? So that she's um, she follows the kind of original intentions of the framers behind the Constitution, which quite apart from the fact that. You know, anyone who's studied literary criticism for more than about 30 seconds will tell you that that's just impossible, mm. that you can never get back to the original intentions of the framers. Even with, you know, the quite extensive writings they wrote, Federalist Papers and so forth, you know, like every text has to be interpreted. Mm. And if, um, if you're applying what you think their intentions were to the modern day, then you're inevitably thinking, what would they have thought about this? But then yes. you're ventriloquizing them. You must be adding, yeah. you're adding your own voice to it. So it's not original at that point. <laughs> exactly. You're already in the realm of interpretation, so why not interpret them? you know things differently um yeah it, it it's so the the i was listening to um it's a conversation on the talking politics podcast uh with an american uh, legal historian and scholar uh, the other day or the other week um which i should link um but she was essentially talking about that this is sort of the overarching project of Mitch McConnell's sort of tenure at the top of Republican politics. You know, to a significant extent, he doesn't particularly care about Donald Trump. In fact, he probably wouldn't care if Donald Trump lost the next general yeah. election, particularly. Um, what he cares about long is... long before Trump, and he'll be here long after. Exactly. What he cares about is getting control of the judicial system. Not just the Supreme mm. Court, but all levels of the judicial system. And Donald Trump has appointed huge numbers of judges at lower levels you know three three supreme court judges in in one in one term is a lot but like if you look at his lower court um, appointments you know he's got loads of them and they're all really really right wing. Yeah. you know he hasn't attempted any kind of balance here it's about fundamentally uh changing the practical meaning of the american constitutional system as it as it is actually expressed in really existing america in order to marginalize the because the American Constitution has always been a bit, uh, it's somewhat democratic, but also many elements of it are deliberately undemocratic. Founding fathers recognised that democracy would be bad for them and their class. So yeah, the, it has always been contended. To what extent are you emphasising the democratic elements of the American Constitution? Mitch McConnell's long-term 
project is to essentially change the practical meaning of the constitution in a very undemocratic direction. Have the political elite have all the power and have the American population have very little latitude for influencing the political direction. And I mean, the reason for this is extremely obvious. It's that he knows full yeah. well. His ideology is extremely unpopular. It would never win in a proper process. Way more Democrats than there are Republicans. Yeah. Among independents, increasingly more independents are leaning Democratic. Mm. And all the demographic data that you care to look at shows that the core Republican base of older, white, you know, you know, lower middle class men, essentially, and, 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 and not that not the women, you know, women of the same sort of group don't vote Republican, but particularly men, is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the population. Mm. That isn't going to change, you know, without some extremely draconian immigration restrictions, which we might get onto if, when we talk about the election. But also, as the Republican Party shifts more and more towards having all of their political direction be serving the interests of the 1%, who have very different class interests to most older white men in America... Yeah. These people uh, <laughs> themselves are likely to, in the long term, start peeling away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen that with certain uh, Republican politicians, even, who have, who have left the party in the last few years and, and joined the Libertarian Party or whatever. Yeah, yeah right. Um, because they even they appreciate that the Republican Party, as it currently exists and in the direction it's going, is, is no longer really the party of capital as such. I mean, in America, the relationship between the Republican Party and capital has always been a bit more fraught than between the British Conservatives and capital, mm -hmm. because of the Democrats are sort of also a capitalist party, but they're no longer, the Republicans are no longer just standing up for the rich writ large. They are standing up for a very specific narrow slice yeah. of the rich. Yeah, yeah. And a powerful. very eccentric element to it as well. Yeah. In, in, in um, their interests are very odd. <laughs> they require yes. very unusual things to happen to them. I mean, there's, there's obviously the, the the religious, the element of religious sectarianism as well. Mm, you know, mm. the Republican Party increasingly relies on evangelical Protestants um, above all. Uh, you know, it it has historically been the case that Jews, other non-Christian religious groups, non-religious people have voted Democrat, um, and but increasingly, but yeah, uh, yeah, but it, uh, and, and and Catholics to an extent. Uh, but increasingly, more and more Catholics are starting to vote Democrat, yeah. and more mainline Protestants are also so switching to the Democratic Party. Part of that is that Catholics are very are a very diverse group in America. You know, mm -hmm. many German yeah. immigrants are Catholic. The the average American Catholic is becoming much more um, Latin American as time yes. goes by, and less German, Italian, Irish. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not necessarily less conservative. It must be said. No, no, no. Um, and I, th I think the Democrats down the line are going to have to deal with the conservatism of quite a lot of Latin American Catholic immigrants who are sort of a natural constituency for them in some ways but not in others but that's a side issue but but yeah. because the Republican Party clearly <laughs> despises them oh and of course yeah and people notice when that happens and vote for the other people <laughs> yeah yeah I don't know it's 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 gonna be an interesting well, the Democratic Party is an unbelievably broad coalition mm. um mm -hmm basically held up by mutual hatred of the Republicans. So if in the long term the Republican Party starts to fall apart or lose the ability to win elections, that unifying enemy will the Democrats won't have that and will find it increasingly difficult to hold together as a party. But that's that's quite a good get rid of the Republicans and then the Democratic Party becomes the political spectrum. That will be a much better <laughs> state of affairs yeah. than what America has at the moment. I mean we we can only hope. My concern of course is that the the Democrats upon attaining power 
when they next do, won't take the steps necessary to ensure that the Republicans are finished off in that way. Not a uh, chance in hell. <laughs> they will not do that, yeah. And uh, I suppose that brings us more or less neatly on to what is in some ways the main topic of conversation. Yeah. Uh, oh my god, we've been going for over two and a half hours. And we're only just getting two. That was the starter. I'm making this up. <laughs> it's the 2020 US general election. The one we've all been waiting for. Yeah, I, I pass. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, there's, there's this guy. Uh, he... he He's a sort of New York huckstery kind of real estate mogul, son of a New York huckstery real estate mogul and member of the KKK. Yeah. Um, grandson of a German immigrant. Um, so he probably would rather you didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and he, he had quite um, a successful to remember. Yeah, he got he got quite big. There was this there was this there was this guy who I read a profile of a while ago um who was big into reality tv and he did a bunch of these shows and uh uh he sort of really spearheaded the reality tv movement in the united states right by sort of copying big brother and things mm. from over here and he decided that what would really be good would be if uh if uh he could get uh someone to front a version the kind of reality that we had in in, in britain um and he settled on uh, he settled on this other guy we've been talking about um, from New York, this sort of huckstery real estate mogul with the orange skin and the bad head do, <laughs> and the extremely discriminatory policies towards renting his apartment. And um, yeah, he uh, he got pretty popular. It's pretty popular, yeah. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people sort of love to hate him more than loved him, really. Uh, but through the sort of late two thousands and twenty tens, as we have them, yeah, he sort of he sort of got bigger and bigger, and he he'd always been sort of pretty in the public eye because he he was always quite good at attracting attention. Um, and they made a film in the eighties called Back to the Future Two that was substantially at least taking the piss out of him. Um, and he was in Home Alone too <laughs> as well. Do you remember that? Yeah, he's in. And so this this and then it comes to to what is it twenty. 2012, 2013, 14, I can't remember exactly. And Barack Obama is giving the White House Correspondents Dinner address. And it's uh, the sort of the, if you don't know, the kind of the setup here is that the President of the United States stands up in front of a room full of journalists and tries to tell jokes it's that someone has written for him tradition. for half an hour. And that's a bit weird. And he, and he decides to, at one point, he just decides to go really in on this guy, this this New York real estate guy, because said New York real estate guy said some pretty unflattering and quite racist things about President Obama back when he was first running for office, um, I mean, uh, when he ran for re-election, about, you know, him not having... And so, you know, Obama sort of takes a few pot shots, and the camera pans over the audience, and Donald Trump's just sat there. I've, I've given the game away. <laughs> he sat there... So coy about saying it. He sat there in the audience... And he's he's staring at Obama as he goes to speech, and his eyes are burning. You can see it in his face. If you haven't watched it, I absolutely recommend you do. You can see it in his face. This is the supervillain creation moment. 
I mean, he was already a prick, don't get me wrong, but, like, this is the point where he really becomes genuinely top-tier-level evil. Mm. And he's like, I will get you, Obama. And so then he runs for fucking president, and for some reason, the American media decide to treat it as if, ha ha ha, look at this funny guy, wouldn't it be funny if he won? And then it looks like he might, yeah. and they start to panic, but it's too bloody late. And then Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, Donald Judas Trump, his middle name's not Judas, but it's funny. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Red Dwarf reference. Um, Donald J. Trump, not the 46th president in the United States, the 45th president in the United yep. States, because one of them was president twice non-consecutively, and for some reason they number him twice. Yep. Which is really annoying. <laughs> That was four years ago. Um, um, you might remember. Things haven't gone that well since, I feel, either for America or the world. Yeah. 2016 was a bad year. Oh, it was. <laughs> if you compare the state of the world then to the state of the world now. Oh, if only we could. <laughs> I brought up Back to the Future earlier, and I, it's the times like these you really wish for a flying DeLorean. <laughs> so... Anyway, yeah, Donald Trump's running for Donald Trump's running for re-election, and yes. uh, for some reason, best known to themselves, the Democratic Party decided that instead of Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren, you know, someone actually halfway decent, they were gonna pick um, Joe Biden to run against him. So that happened, um, and so now we're in this situation. The final run-up to polling day itself. Yeah, as we speak, is. It's about three days. It's three days to polling day, but as we're speaking, it'll probably be a day or two to polling day by the time you... Of course, polling day in the time of coronavirus is a bit meaningless, and we'll cover that in a moment, I'm Indeed. sure. But, um... So, would you like to hear the 538 projections Go on. for the general election? Okay. Love the so for those who don't, For those who don't know, 538 is a data journalism website that, among other things, does a lot of polling aggregation. And, um... They are currently giving Joe Biden a 90% chance to win the general election, and Donald Trump a 10% chance. What do you reckon to that? Well, for one thing, things with a 10% chance of happening do happen sometimes. Do, do you know, David, they happen 10% they of the time. They happen one in 10 of times, and there yeah, have been more times. than 10 elections ever. They, you know, I think you're right. Yeah. So, for one thing, <laughs> that's not really high enough for it to be complacent, for one thing. Absolutely. Um, but also, 538 gave Hillary Clinton extremely high. It wasn't quite this high. No. So there is this hanging ghost over this whole election that Donald Trump is behind in much of the polling. But we've all seen this. The big difference is that Joe Biden's lead over Donald Trump, compared to Hillary Clinton's back in 2016, is much, much bigger. Yeah, would you want to know the popular vote? Yeah, go on then. So the national popular vote on October the 30th, the average is, this is a weighted average, so they give more, uh, slightly more credit to more reliable pollsters and more recent polls mm. than slightly older ones. The average is, Joe Biden is projected to win 53.3% of the vote, and Donald Trump is projected to win 45.5%. So that's a lead of 7.8 points, if my maths haven't. That's, a, that's quite a big lead. <laughs> I think it's basically inevitable at this point that the Democrats will win seems quite likely. But the thing is, they won the popular vote in 2000 as well. They won the popular vote in 2016 as well. But yeah. the American system appears to be set up such that 
it's the Democrats t- whether they win the election or not. So would you like to hear the electoral vote numbers? Yes. Okay. If you didn't already work this out, David and I are both big, like, sophology nerds, which mm-hmm. is the technical term for election data nerds. Yeah. Um, okay. Joe Biden is projected to win. 348. Donald Trump is projected to win. A hundred And actually, if you look at the graph, uh, the margin of error on that, they're actually they're actually pretty much non, non-overlapping. They overlap, only overlap extremely slightly. Mm. So basically, a normal-sized polling error that you might expect, which was enough for Hillary Clinton to lose in 2016, yeah. um, actually wouldn't give Trump the victory this time around. There would have to be a historically large polling error for Donald Trump to win. Have to pull or something, something has to dramatically change in the last few days. Sorry? He would have to pull something unbelievable out of his hat. Yeah, or the polls have to be drastically wrong. Somehow. Yeah, right. Which yeah. it is possible that they are, because this is such of an course. unusual election. Yeah. Right. So yeah. because of COVID-19, um, a lot of people are voting by post, and this is split down party lines in America. COVID, is a, and whether it should be taken seriously, whether changes in people's behaviour whether people should change their behaviour in order to try and fight COVID-19 has become something of a partisan political issue. That seems mm-hmm. insane to me, but it, it has. So this yeah, means that yeah, Democrats, yeah. overwhelmingly, are much, much more likely to be voting by post than Republicans. So, but Republicans are still much more likely to be voting by post than in a normal year. Yeah, that's very true. But this means that if there is something that causes there to be a difference, then it will not happen evenly across everyone. And one thing that almost certainly will happen is that postal votes will be counted slower. Oh, yes. That will definitely happen. Uh, for one thing, in many states, uh, you can receive a postal vote several days after the election. And as long as it's been posted before the uh, election day, or in some cases on the election day, depending on the state, it still counts. So there is going to be a big tail to this election. Mm. This is not going to be the kind of election where we are going to know all the results by you know, the end of election night. We may know the winner. Yes. So that is it's possible, possible we'll know the winner. Because there are particular states and particular districts where, for example, people aren't voting um, by post. It's not being allowed. There's also states such as Arizona, which is a reasonably close state in this election, where they're very used to voting by mail. Yeah, they right. do it all the time. Um, so, probably so they'll probably count those results quick. which come in pretty completely on election night. And yeah. Which way they have swung compared to previous elections, will give us something of a picture of probably, even if we don't yeah. have all the results yet. And if one side wins by an enormous margin, that will probably be clear quite early. So it's possible we will know the winner on election night. It's what is almost certainly likely is that, because of his character, Donald Trump will not accept that. Yes. If Unless he wins. <laughs> In which case, he will accept it instantly. And the worrying thing is that what is quite possible is that we get a lot of results in on election because votes in person are very likely to shift more towards the Republicans because a lot of the Republicans have been told by Trump and other Republican leaders that postal votes aren't to be trusted. That a lot of the in-person vote will, will skew more Republican than the vote overall. It might look by, at some point on election night, you know, that Donald Trump's in the lead. And if at that point Donald Trump claims victory... And then it comes, the postal votes start to trickle in, and then Joe Biden's back ahead. We then have a very sticky situation, indeed. He can then claim, oh, well, I'm having the election stolen from me. Yeah. So let's have a, I think let's have a quick look at them. Um, because 
Okay, so there's so the overall uh, popular vote is pretty wide margin. Electoral votes in the pretty wide margin, you know. But there are certain states that are more likely than others to be a what's called the tipping point state. The state, but has to be won in order for that side to win. Um, and so... So just an, an extreme version of this to illustrate the point. If the Democrats have lost California, they have lost the election. Yes. And if you don't know anything about the other states, any election in which they're losing such a solidly blue states, yeah. they will have lost all the other states too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, it's so, a less severe version of that, that if they've lost this state, then they've probably... Yeah, lost. yeah. So the most Republican state is the third district of Nebraska. Actually, Nebraska, irritatingly, Nebraska and, uh, is it Maine Maine is the other one? Yeah, Nebraska and Maine split their electoral votes up by district in a weird way. So the most Republican constituency is Nebraska's third district. The most Republican state is Wyoming. And the most Democratic constituency is the District of Columbia, Washington, the capital. And the most Democratic state is Vermont, Sanders country. Mm. In the middle, though, you have such states as Georgia, Maine 2nd District, Florida, North Carolina, New Mexico, Virginia, Colorado, statewide Maine vote, New Hampshire, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Arizona, the Nebraska 2nd, Nevada, and the tipping point state, according to 538, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It's all going to come down to Philly. Oh, Do you God. like a Philly cheesesteak? Do you know, I don't think I know what one is. I know what Philly cheese is. Yeah, a, a Philly cheesesteak cheese is just meat covered in that between bread, ah, basically. It sounds nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in Pennsylvania, the forecasted vote chair is thus. Biden, 52.2%. Trump, 47.1%. So, that so the gap is only 5.1%. And so, that this is, the, this is where it gets dicey, because... In Pennsylvania, which is very likely to be the tip, a normal polling error of three points, say, could have Biden leading by only two points, which is about what Hillary Clinton, and with the Electoral College coming into play, it could get close. Mm. And add to that the fact that Democratic votes will come in slower. Yeah. So it's still unlikely. It's still unlikely. You know, 538 says there's only 10% chance of, of, of Trump actually winning legitimately. But if it's if it's a close enough Biden win that those slow coming in postal votes in a few key states matter, we could be in for a very long few weeks. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there we're going to have terms which we which none of us knew before will, will become common political. Uh, yeah. in, in the like hanging Chad became everyone knows <laughs> what they are now after two thousand. Oh, I love a hanging. Could have one for dinner every night, but um. <laughs> Yeah, the the problem is, right, is that, like, so people always go on polarization and partisanship in the United States, right? They talk about this a lot. And with, you know, with, with justification, it has been on the increase lately. Um, 60s or so. It's, it's gotten sort of worse and worse with it. Um, uh, but they talk about it mostly in the context of, like, oh, partisanship makes it hard to get stuff done, partisanship degrades the character of our politics, etc., in the era of Donald Trump, though, it's le- it's 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 more d- partisanship is l- potentially lethal. There was a plot that was foiled by the FBI, I believe, uh, a few weeks ago, to kidnap and potentially execute the governor of Michigan for bringing in um, certain COVID restrictions that were felt to be by these sort of right-wing libertarian slash conservative slash completely off their rocker 
militia people, a violation of their sort of liberty. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, governor, um, was targeted. And after the plot was exposed, Donald Trump taunted her about it at a rally. You know, this is a hard-right, quasi-fascist terrorist plot to kidnap and possibly murder a sitting elected US governor, and the president is making jokes about it. You know, this is lock her up, but, you know, on steroids, right? This is lock her up, but not have due process. Just kidnap someone. <laughs> Give me your take, David. Uh, I want this, your take. On, on the, specifically the, the possible kidnapping of the governor of Michigan. More generally, yeah, and more ge- more generally on the sort of more generally on the sort of l- level to which you think that the kind of partisanship we're experiencing now is like yeah. different from the past and so I don't, potentially I don't more know to dangerous. What it's um, partisanship is exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can certainly read it as uh, as the Republican Party slightly towards fascism. It has mm-hmm. steadily over the last few decades been acquiring one by one all of the distinctive features of a fascist movement. And it doesn't have all of them. I'm not saying that they are a fascist party, but they are definitely... They have been moving significantly in that direction for a long time. They are acquiring a lot more, certainly since Trump, of the uh, the style of thinking which you need in order to end up as a fascist. And now they are particularly around this election, and this is what's particularly worrying about this election, is that if Trump tries to contest it and says that it's being stolen from him, this could accelerate quite quickly. The extra-parliamentary violence, which is, which is required for it to be a proper fascist movement, um, that mm-hmm. is accelerating very quickly and um, operating in uneasy but effective um, coalition with that's a distinctive feature of yes. fascism as well. That's happening a lot as well, particularly explicitly the extra parliamentary violence because you know, at the at protests of the police, uh, particularly endorsing and handing out water to far right protests. Yeah, you know, this is this is very very serious and it could get very very quickly. Um, so. I suppose the way that partisanship plays in is the way that the rest of the Republican Party are going along with it. A lot of what Trump has been saying and doing over his entire term and the campaign the first time around is sort of, in some meaningful sense, even if it's not, even if he himself is not a fascist as such, has been in a meaningful sense sort of doing a fascism, right? Mm. Contributing to the instantiation of fascist ideology and practice in the world particularly within the Republican Party and within the broader American right. But when it comes to this election, I think... I think this election is really a flashpoint. And I think... I think come what may, I think you're right. After this election, we are going to see real nasty problems. I think quite a lot of people will will probably step away from the brink. um, And there are a lot of people that are engaged and really invested in the Trump project which, if it fails, go back to their normal lives. But I think what's quite likely is that a significant portion of it, probably the most extreme portion of it, will mm-hmm. go the other way. They'll go further down the route. And so you have things like QAnon and stuff like yeah, that, yeah, which totally. are sort of bubbling away in the background and they're keeping people um, radicalised. And, I, yeah, I mean, I, I really worry what people like that are going to do if Trump loses. Mm. On the other hand, I really worry what people like that are going to do if Trump wins. Yeah, totally. Um... You know, because this this is the thing, is that, like, if the 10% comes up and Trump wins the general election legitimately, without talking about him stealing it, he then has a mandate of sorts, because he's almost certainly not going to win the popular vote, right, even if he does win the election. But he then has a mandate of sorts, and he will certainly interpret that as a mandate to 
forge on with a lot of the policies that he has wanted to but been unable to or restrained from or stimmied from doing so he's already talked about um if he wins he's going to fire several people within his administration who are sort of right-wingers but sort of in the sort of more conventional republican mold who have been sort of getting in his way there's there was a there was a, a an interview with like an, an anonymous official in the administration who, who says that donald trump has explicitly said that um mm. in in sort of well, i must say that in, on, in private. specific specifically on policy the way he's governed has been pretty much just as a republican he hasn't really done very much that is that is that outside of the window of what most republicans uh, the, the the real difference is in the way that he it, um the bully pulpit of the presidency to construct the ideology and political direction of the right has actually that in a fascist direction. Yeah. There are also real differences. Yeah, no, agreed. But, like, I think I worry to what extent if he were to win the election, right? So so uh, we'll get onto the Senate and the House a little bit more in a bit. But, like, if 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 Donald Trump wins the presidency, he prob- the Republicans also probably keep the Senate, right? Mm-hmm. There's very little chance that um, Donald Trump could win. In fact, I could probably. I think the five thirty eight have it like calculated. They have other probabilities, but not that particular one. But like, if 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 Donald Trump wins the presidency, the Republicans also probably keep the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means we sort of have the status quo, right? Where where the the Senate are still in a position. The Republican Senate is still in a position where they can um, continue to sort of prevent the Democratic House from getting anything progressive through, uh, and at the same time they can continue to confirm you know, whoever the hell Donald Trump wants to appoint to this, that, and the other position. And, you know, he, my, my concern is that, like, although he probably won't be able to get any legislation passed, because whatever happens, the Democrats are extremely unlikely to lose the House. Um, uh, so the House percentages are currently um, 98% for the Democrats to win, uh, to keep the House. So, so there's, there's an extremely low chance that, um, that, uh, the house flips to the republicans though you know two percent is not nothing but um in a presidential election your turnout will be higher and if turnout's yeah. high enough then <laughs> the democrat yeah yeah but um yeah but my, my my concern is what donald trump does with his appointments procedures to various positions within the executive administration such that the tendencies in his policy which have been sort of sharply anti-immigration sharply anti-environmentalist sharply sort of anti-workers' um, rights. And I agree with you, not in a sort of, like, dramatically different way from, you know, a regular Republican, but I, I, I do think... Yeah, just to make it clear that, that I'm not saying that it's not extraordinary that Trump's doing it. I'm just saying that that's, no. the whole Republican Party is is as bad yeah. as people think Trump is. Yeah, 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 but I, I think... I do think that if Trump wins this election, he is going to personally feel that that kind of victory is going to give him the sort of impetus to sort of push that even further than he has yeah i can completely see that yeah i i can also see um you know he's been deploying sort of federal forces to sort of various cities um portland most notably but also philadelphia and other places i can see that ramping up significantly if he wins i was gonna remember Um, there's an economic crisis happening because of under covid yeah who gets to respond to that who sets the agenda for the first four years in america a quite different economic model uh, whatever arises out of this crisis yeah that's donald trump that's not gonna be good no it's really it's really not and so i I, yeah i i think a donald trump it is worth noting that i think a a second donald trump term might be even worse might be even worse than the first yeah 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 i totally see that yeah on the other hand 
What if the Democrats win? Right. What if what if um things go the way that it looks like they will and Joe Biden wins? That all of the things which led to so Donald Trump, part of the point of mentioning that there are many ways in which Trump isn't that different is also to bring out the fact that the ways that he is different, a lot of that is the culmination of a trajectory that the Republicans have been on for a while. They have been moving in this direction, kind of since Nixon. Yeah, well, before that even. Oh, indeed. Um, so, even if Trump loses, I see no reason to think that they won't continue further down this path. It's, it's Trump did, wasn't the origin of why the Republican Party is lurching to the right. It's been lurching to the right repeatedly for decades. Yeah. Before either of us were born. And the American economy and society have many underlying divisions and problems which are not going to be solved by Biden. Um, and so all of the trends which led to Trump, both inside and outside the Republican Party, none of them are actually going to be fundamentally addressed, even if he loses. So the question yeah. is, even if he loses, where's the Republican Party going to be in four years' time? People are said about a Tom Cotton presidential right, yeah. run. You know. And Tom Cotton is like, what if Donald Trump but competent? Yeah. Or more competent. Maybe. Yeah, really dangerous. Especially if if what we talked about before about how a hard core element current Trump base disappears further down the rabbit hole are properly organised. Because there are people who believe in QAnon in Congress now. Mm. They have extra parliamentary um, violent paramilitary groups that they already do, but, but that are much more aggressive and widespread than they were before. Plus that kind of presidency. Yeah. Whoa, that's not, that's not looking... So what do you think the Democrats have to do over the next four years to head that off? Well, um... That number one thing would have been to nominate Bernie Sanders as uh, yeah. nominee rather than Joe Biden. Well, maybe maybe um, Joe Biden dies and then Kamala Harris um, uh, moves to Mars and then yeah. um, <laughs> uh, Bernie and then Nancy Sanders... Pelosi can become prime can become president. <laughs> no, then, then Nancy Pelosi um, uh, gets lost in the Oregon forest. Yeah, um, and then who's behind Pelosi? Yeah, but she <laughs> yeah. doesn't necessarily have to stay speaker forever. You could end up with a progressive speaker of the house. But how do they get rid of that? But really, I don't think that would be enough to stop a decades-long slide towards fascism. Just one thing like that. There needs to be a really serious change of political direction from the centres of power of the American state. And so I could, you say, what could the Democrats do to avoid it? Um, there's lots of things that they could do. It's just none of them are very likely. <laughs> well, we, talk, we we talked earlier about court packing and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I Joe Biden's true. been surprisingly coy when asked about that in debates as to about whether he would do it. And you know, if you if you if you sort of said a year ago, would Joe Biden pack the court? You'd say, God no, he's far too, you know, moderate mm-hmm. for that. Now he's being rather coy about it and suggesting, you know, all options are on the table and this yeah. kind of thing. I must say, there does appear to be... Uh, what were you saying earlier that the Republican Party isn't really the central party of American capital anymore. It's the Democrats, really. Yeah. Um, that is a slightly different setup to what is the norm for countries which actually go fully down the road into fascism. Yes. So th- there does appear to be a very, very significant majority of interests of American capital and the capitalist class who are willing, politically active in an attempt to stop that kind of policy. Now, I don't think that necessarily means they're going to succeed, because it is their kind of politics which has led to this status quo, including yeah. extreme elements. But it does mean that there, there are quite a few very powerful forces in American politics. Not all of the ones that I really support, but they are there who don't like this tendency. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and in addition to that, I do think that, that Biden's willingness to even consider these kinds of um, sort of constitutional reforms 
does show that to a greater extent than I think has been the case in the past, really since sort of the transformative sort of um, kind of period of like Roosevelt. Serious reformers, you know, not revolutionaries, nothing of that nature, but serious reformers within the Democratic Party sort of coalition are starting to get some traction and are starting to have some persuasive influence even over the elites. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I, I don't think that if, if you hadn't had the Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020, I don't think Joe Biden would be considering pecking the court. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. That's just a piece of it. It's a very antagonistic relationship between the elite and, and grassroots elements of the Democratic Party. But I must say that in the con- coming from a British perspective, it does appear to be they're a little bit more willing to work with each other than, than the different factions of the Labour Party. Yeah, the, the, who are the like, arguably the closest together. Biden has treated the progressive elements of the party and Bernie Sanders since becoming them seriously different to the way that the right of the Labour Party and the current leadership have treated the left since they took over the party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, so, I think that's very true. Yeah, I think if, if, the po- if the position is going to be we try to form an anti-fascist popular front with liberal, the problem with trying to do that in the British context is centrists in Britain are not willing to hold up their end of that bargain. Yeah, and whilst in America it's it's still an extremely antagonistic relationship, I think that there is more latitude for working together against the the really kind of apocalyptic, terrible stuff that's happening. Yeah, no, I, I, I hadn't quite thought about it in that way, but I think you are right. That does that does ring somewhat true. I mean, so yeah, I mean, so what else could the Democrats do other than packing the court? Uh, people have been talking about statehood for um, Washington D.C. Puerto Rico, and I even heard, um, or rather read, sort of mentions of perhaps uh, the Navajo Nation, which is the largest, oh, right, wow. um, the largest uh, Native American reservation in the USA. So I know that um, Puerto Rico and DC both have bigger populations than Wyoming, which is the US state with the lowest population. I wonder yeah. what, how the Navajo compare. Oh, not even if it's lower, I think it's, it's still a good idea. But the, the Navajo Nation is. Um, I think it's it's bigger than it's bigger than at least a couple. Um, by area, it's bigger than quite a few, but uh, by population, I don't know. It has um, a population of one hundred and seventy-three thousand. Okay, so it's, it's maybe by population, quite as big. Uh, what's the population? Uh, population of Wyoming is just over half a million. Okay, yeah. So by population, it's not it's not in the same ballpark. But in in terms of area, I mean, it's massive, right? Mm. It's <laughs> it's it's bigger than it's bigger than West Virginia or Maryland. Um, let alone Rhode Island or something like that. But yeah, it um, yeah, I have heard that said. I don't. I mean, when it comes to DC, I think DC is a very clear cut case. The population of Definitely. DC want it. There's a very strong case for them having it, and I think it would be quite easy for the Democrats to get that through, assuming they win. You know, the Senate. That's kind of true of Puerto Rico as well. Puerto Rico is a little more complicated because there are anti-statehood groups in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm. I, I think. I'm not sure what... It's more politically contentious, but it's still pretty overwhelmingly. Yeah. Most do want it. Yeah, let's have a look. Um, State movement. uh, Yeah, about 60. Pre-referendum polling. Apparently there's a referendum on the cards at the moment, um, which is due to take place... uh, Was due to take place... Oh, no, there's a a referendum due to take place on the 3rd of November. I didn't Ah. even know that. It's actually due to take place coincidentally with the election. Oh, that's good. That's cool. Right, yeah, so the um, um, polling then is uh, 70% for yes in the most recent uh, 
40 less than closer ones though. it's presumably non-binding though because Predator doesn't have no it, yes absolutely will be non-binding um but it will be a significant step forward anyone who wants to campaign for it in dc uh, will we be able to say, well, Puerto Ricans want it, they've just had this referendum. Are we going to deny yeah. their democratic rights as American? So, um, so yeah, 70%, 70 versus 30, 43 7. I haven't had time to sort of sit down and do an average, but certainly statehood seems to be more popular than not. Um, and more popular than independence as well, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't on the ballot, but but some of the polling asked that as well. So, yeah, um, that's really interesting. Yeah, okay, I didn't, I yeah, so I think, I think that's plausible, uh, which would give the Democrats... Four extra senators, because DC would definitely give them two, and Puerto Rico, I would imagine, probably they would get those as well, um, and a decent number of extra House votes. So that could be, that could definitely be a, a move they could make. I don't know what other reforms are sort of plausible. I think the Navajo Nation one, whilst an interesting idea, and certainly something that should be looked into, uh, is probably a bit less likely because yeah. it's significant. I would support more. it. It's just I'd... keeping it really much less likely. Yeah, I would support it conditional on the. Navajo actually wanting it. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I could certainly understand them not wanting it because that would sort of involve abandoning their claims to yeah. be sovereign. Yeah, which yeah, are, totally. like, their claims to be sovereign in terms of American law aren't worth the paper they're written on because the Americans just ignore them. Yeah, but I, I know I, that I there are understand. First Nations people in Canada who refuse to register and refuse to vote, whatever, because yeah. technically they never gave their land away. No, absolutely. As far as they're concerned. There is no Canada. <laughs> no, it was it was it was either stolen from them, yeah, or or you know c conquered in the wars of aggression, and the treaties weren't properly honoured. Mm -hmm. There is a there is a, a a First Nation state in northern Canada though. They they do actually have their own state. Mm. Uh, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but the, the northernmost state of Canada is actually sort of explicitly uh, an indigenous state with indigenous governorship. Obviously, doesn't include all First Nations Canadian people because it is a yeah, specifically yeah, defined geographical area but but they do have that whereas the America yeah I don't know what else they could do I think they do I, I mean I agree with what you know what we said earlier about a constitutional convention being something they could maybe push for yeah I think that would be very very difficult and would take time to sort of get that into the public consciousness but I think it's possibly something that they should start working on I suppose that that's the thing to insist on the opposing fascism potential is to hold on to the fact that that's a very unpopular direction for America to take among the American people. So if the American Constitution functions democratically, it won't happen. So if we can reform America to make it into a, an, you know, an actually democratic system, then it, the political direction will change as well. Like in Britain, when working class people got the vote for the two-party system, breaks up, the Labour Party exists, we have the NHS. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the extent to which something's democratic is an abstract procedural point. It, it determines what section of the really existing material society gets to determine the direction of state policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is the central. I agree. But then I'm a big constitutional nerd, so I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that could be a popular rallying cry and speak something to the American story as well. The fact that we're fulfilling the promise of, uh, you know, the American promise. That, that honour that legacy even when it's overcoming the the, the ways in which the people that founded the country were self-contradictory because they kept slaves and they, they wanted the constitution to be undemocratic in many ways. We're honouring the best parts of our story. That could totally be a campaign. You should you should advise the Democratic <laughs> Party on long-term strategy. Oh, they wouldn't listen. 
President President Ocasio Cortez uh, would listen. Oh, I would. I would go with that. Yes. Ocasio Cortez, twenty twenty eight. When she had eligible twenty eight or something, she can run. I think twenty four. Actually, I think she's. Can she, she run twenty four? It's, it's it's really really close, but I think by like a matter of a month. Or... I do. I do like Ocasio Cortez. I like Omar as well. I I, yeah, I think of anything. I like Omar more. Yeah, you're right. October the thirteenth is her birthday, so yeah, she would be eligible in twenty four. Um, just. Nina Turner was a really significant figure in, in Bernie's campaign. I can't remember what she... She is an elected representative of some kind, but in, in a state legislature somewhere. I think she's a state senator from somewhere. Former. Anyway, she's always been really senator. good. I always liked her a lot. Mm. And mm-hmm. I know that she's she's dropped some hints that maybe she's going to run. Apparently she was offered the role of vice presidential running member. Oh, right, cool. But yeah, we'll yeah. see. We've got four years to worry about that. Who's, who's going to be the senator? Oh, she's a history professor. Oh, I love her already. She's what? She's a history professor <laughs> already. Yeah. Historians... Unite. Give all the power to historians. This is when someone po- points out that both Benito Mussolini and Pol Pot were history teachers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So be careful with um, scientists as well. Yeah. The only scientist is Thatcher. <laughs> yes, she was chemist. Yep. Yeah. Well, that'd be a lesson to you. Yeah. I'm not sure well, what, I shouldn't be but... prime minister because I'll be Thatcher. <laughs> now you're a physicist. That's different. You're, you're I it chemist. Is different, yeah. Chemistry is much more sort of physical and like involved in the nitty gritty of things. I can see where that would lead you to a kind of petty bourgeois mentality that might inform a Thatcherite. Yeah, I think she works in like move. food technology stuff. Was what she did before. Wasn't she really key in, in the invention of soft serve ice cream or something? <laughs> you know that rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. Merkel's a chemist as well. She is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's something about something about women of that sort of generation who are chemists. <laughs> well, I suppose Merkel's a bit long-serving but... uh, conservative heads of state in Europe. Yeah, yeah. That's a fortunate cookie. Um, right. <laughs> we should talk briefly about the Senate because we haven't really. Seventy-eight um, percent chance for the Democrats to take it. So oh, really? Wow. Good. Okay. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone up a lot. Well, I suppose if you win the electoral college, there's yeah. always a chance you win the Senate because it's equally weighted across all the states. Yeah, so like on September, uh, on September the eleventh, which was its closest, um, according to the five day average since they started running it, uh, they only had a fifty seven percent chance of winning it, and now it's up to seventy eight. So it's gone up, it's gone up twenty points. That has actually swung quite a bit. I don't know if there's any particularly interesting. Tom Cotton is probably going to fucking win. So ninety nine percent. He's a fascist, everyone. Do you think Bannon's going to come back? Bannon, do you say? Yeah. Um, I've got this weird feeling in the back of my brain that, like, because obviously him and Trump fell out, but but when Trump's gone, right? Assuming Trump loses, do you think Bannon will sneak back in and like stop being start being advisor to Tom Cotton or someone? Oh, I hope not. He's very talented. Yeah, um, he's very good at winning. He gets what was popular about Trump. And it's sort of it's a little bit palpable in his current camp. Got that element. I don't know how much of that can be put down to just Bannon, but I no, think probably no, some of yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't he? Uh, there's some kind of legal proceedings against him. He, he fraud. Yes. Yeah. He was. He was. Um, he was picked up for. He'll get off that. Yeah. Or he'll get like a tiny. Set. Yeah, he'll, mm. he'll... What other sort of interesting races we got? Uh, there's the Georgia race where it looks Republicans 57 percent chance to take it, but John Ossoff is uh, Iowa pretty close, 54 percent for the Democrats. Georgia. The Georgia special election. That's an interesting one because that's going to go to a runoff probably because the the Republican ticket is split because they're in they have jungle jungle elections oh. where everyone can run uh, in special elections, and um, it looks like uh, 
yeah, it looks like that will go to a runoff because there's two Republicans who are trying to sort of out-Trump one another. <laughs> um, it's quite interesting. Let me... Yeah, so you've got... Um, You've got that, so that's probably going to go to a runoff. So that probably, and the runoff election's not until like January or something. So technically, the twenty twenty election won't finish until like January. It's going to be hell. can't wait that long. We don't even know if the world will still exist then. Yeah, I mean, if if the Senate if the Senate comes down to a single seat, that could genuinely make a difference, right? Yeah, right. And the Senate's uh, always pretty. There's Maine, where Susan Collins is pro- looking like she might lose her seat. Ooh, the Democrats really? have got sixty percent chance of taking her. North Carolina. 65. I know that and... there are a few. Um, so back when the what remained of Bernie's twenty sixteen campaign started to uh, try to get socialists and, and left-wing people elected as Democrats. There are some people who failed that first time round who have now tried again and won their primaries. Yeah. So it's already pretty likely that there will be quite a few more squad-type people in the House, entering yeah. the House this time. Cory Bush is my... Mm, she was mm-hmm. the first Justice Democrat yeah. in her primary, but she has now. Mm-hmm. That's why AOC became the face of that part of the Democratic Party, is because she ended up because she actually won her primary. It was I don't know who it was. She toppled someone really high profile in the Democratic Party as well. Like AOC. Yeah, yeah, they were like the third highest person in the leadership yeah. or something. Yeah. That was a big moment. I think we talked about that in our like most recent episode. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely think it was the most recent one we did. Oh, the one from last year? Yeah, the year before. Oh right, okay. The yeah. most recent one that's like published. Yeah. Um God. It's been too long, but I'm glad we're back. Yeah, and yeah hopefully we'll back. be back more sort of regularly. I've sort of pushed through the horrible mental um, breakdown of like, oh my god, my life is falling apart because I think I might be trans, and mm-hmm. now I've just gone for it. So trans now. Yeah. S- sorry, mum. Should we um, quickly recap? Um, then the uh, Bolivia New Zealand things because yeah, right. obviously that was killed and I, I think it's worth noting they are quite significant events I suppose yeah yeah um, so let's get those up uh, so we can have the data for those because I always it's because he died and it's in my head should we, should we have a Sean Connery memorial episode I see he's a bit of a misogynist prank won't he let's not yeah. um, I think it's really in the remit of the yeah, that will be the bit. That, if I leave that in, that will be the thing everyone complains about. <laughs> like all your discussion about you know anti-Semitism with Labour Party, we were on board with that. But how dare you about our beloved Sean? <laughs> no, he was. He was. He he was a he was a he was a real misogynist. He, I'm not saying I'm glad he's dead, but I'm not shedding any tears. Right. So <laughs> New Zealand first, uh, or rather the Labour Party. <laughs> Why not? Why not? So. Uh, yeah, so uh, again, this is stuff that was re- uh, covered by us on the last episode. Mm. But well, it was um, a little bit more fresh, but yeah, it's still, but, uh, it's still fairly recent and it's worth going over. So um, the seventeenth of October, there was a general election. House of Representatives of the joinous country of New Zealand, and um, quite surprisingly, the Labour Party won a majority, which is exceptionally unusual because New Zealand has a proportional representation system. Uh, their their proportional representation system, which specifically is mixed member proportional representation, was introduced in 1996, and since then no one's won a majority. So the Labour Party under Jacinda Ardern uh, won 49 and 64 seats. Um, the National Party, which is sort of their Tories, you can you can quibble this in a minute, but mm-hmm. uh, won 26.8% of the vote, and only 35 seats. Which is 
brutal, right? It's like a there's like a twenty point mod. The uh, just astonishing. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a certainly in modern times a British general election that's been that one sided. No, no, quite. Uh, the ACT, the sort of Libertarian Party... Um, how do you have a Libertarian Party? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Yeah. Anyway, uh, the Libertarian Party got um, 8% of the vote and 10 seats. The Green Party got 7.6% uh, of the vote and 10 seats. The Maori Party got 1% of the vote and um, 1 seat. Although I think they only run in Maori electorates because New Zealand has special um, and New Zealand first the sort of UKP type people uh, got 2.7% of the vote and no seats bye bye yeah so before the election uh, Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party were in government as the senior partners in the coalition with New Zealand first which uh, is a serious black mark against um, Very serious, her yes. sort of character yeah let's let's not be around the bush um, but now they're in majority government so uh david knows much more about news take it away david. a little i've only really take? learned very much since this election mm -hmm. so this election the primary thing that she's driving this huge swing towards is basically the fact that they have handled the covid 19 extremely well compared to other countries they've had what have they had they've had some they've had under 100 deaths significant like 20. new zealand have had just under 2,000 cases and only 25 deaths. Yeah, 25 deaths. Which is extraordinary. Brilliant. In a country of, of, of what, 5 million? Very, very good. So, But their actual manifesto was quite slim. There wasn't very much um, policy, certainly very much radical policy, in the Labour Party manifesto. So how they will actually govern is a bit of an open question for the next parliamentary term. Mm -hmm. um, Jacinda Ardern, personally, her politics are... A little bit ambiguous. She has said in the past that capitalism is a blatant failure, um, but she's also not uh, not exactly a sort of populist left type figure. She's quite a standard issue politician who fundamentally changed society too much either. So I think she's mm -hmm. a she's neither a Blair nor a Corbyn type figure, and the particular policies that she's been elected on are pretty thin on the ground. So what she'll actually do, but either way, compared to what's been happening in a lot of other countries recently, this is the sort of thing that hasn't happened for a long time, which is a broadly centre-left party actually winning an election. Because there was a time back in the 90s and early 2000s where they were winning elections all over the place. You had Bill Clinton in America, you had Gerard Schroeder, Blair in Britain. You had, you had, you had these people all over the place. But it's not, it's not really, apart from this new New Zealand government, an example of a centrist or centre-left party, or certainly the traditional left party in a centrist mode, winning an election convincingly. There have been centrists winning elections like Macron, um, but not in the context of the... So that particular formula of the traditional left party moving to the centre and then winning loads of elections hasn't really worked anywhere for a long time now. And that's not exactly what's happened in New Zealand here, but it is um, a non-radical left party. I don't know what that's going to mean for the future. Probably means something. I think it's... Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting. I mean... I also one also wonders. So you said before that um, uh, the manifesto that they stood on was quite sort of not particularly radical, but one does wonder how much of that was because they were expecting to end up in a coalition with somebody. Right. Yeah. Totally. And and sort of what what they'll do now they have a majority government is sort of up in the air. That's true. And so the, I could see I could see them moving the, leftward. The forces in New Zealand, which roughly align with our sort of political 
um, project are partly in the New Zealand Green Party, partly in the Labour Party. New Zealand has elected by an enormous margin a leader who deliberately uses the bully pulpit of being the head of government uh, to not stoke racism explicitly, <laughs> to not endorse bigotry, um, and have some kind of vague language, but which is in support of a broadly progressive perspective on the world, which is not terribly usual in um, the countries of the democratic world at the moment. Particularly so it's in good the news. Anglosphere. Yes, particularly in the Anglosphere. So she's, it, it, it isn't exactly a victory for our kind of politics, but it is still significant good news. Oh, it's worth, it's worth noting also that the Green Party, which is in the New Zealand context, one which um, aligns more with our kind of politics, also had quite a good night. They went up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and, the, and the Maori the Maori party, although they, they, they lost a vote share, they actually won a seat. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> Quite alright. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have a great deal more to say about that, other than it's no, no. worth noting. Um, shall we turn to uh, Bolivia, then? Ah, yes. So this is, this election took place the very next day, and this was much more exciting. Yeah, a much less qualified uh, joy yeah. this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, a few of you may remember that uh, a little while ago, it's about a year ago now, right? Yeah. October, yeah. yeah, almost exactly a year ago, um, the leader of Bolivia, Eva Morales, uh, stood in a general election, his party stood, and won, reasonably convincingly, but the um, election results were disputed by opposition and by certain international bodies. And there was what one could charitably call a um, uh, right-wing military-backed coup. Yeah. Uh, and a right-wing Ira- military-backed kerfuffle. Kerfuffle, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Eva Morales was kicked out. Yes. Of not just the office, but the country. I don't, I don't have to point out that there is pretty much no evidence that he did divide. And uh, when... It was disputed. He immediately offered to rehold the elections. Say, yeah. Okay. You want to re- you want to fight the election again? Let's go. But they didn't accept that. Instead, they launched a right wing military backed kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. <laughs> and I think the fact that he didn't uh, fiddle the election results is probably borne out by the fact that this time around, yes. his party won by the big margin. Yeah, by um, an enormous margin. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the scores on the doors are the MAS IPSP which is the Movement for Socialism, Political Instrument for the Sovereignty of the Peoples, alternatively referred to as the Movement Towards Socialism or the Movement to Socialism, um, won 55.1% of the vote. Dumbishing about that. Yeah, just <laughs> 55% of the vote. Can you imagine if the Labour Party won 55% of the vote? Can you imagine <laughs> if the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn had won 55% of the vote? <laughs> that is, and also, it's kind of that, it is that brand of politics. That, yeah. That's, that's what it would be like. We'd be, we'd be living in bloody, Cloud I don't know. Night. Yeah. I wouldn't be so bloody stressed all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the FRI, the Revolutionary Left Front, uh, won 28.83%. And uh, I should say, sorry, um, this is the, pres- the presidential election. It doesn't work quite the way. Um, so uh, the the movement to socialism, uh, their candidate was Louis Arca, uh, or Luis Arca, I don't speak Spanish. Um, he he sort of personally won the fifty five point one percent, and the candidate from the party 
known as the revolutionary left front uh, was Carlos Mesa. Um, but he's actually part of a, the civic community of the coalition, uh, which is actually not revolutionary left by any stretch of the imagination. It's a, and then uh, the candidate of the uh, Krimoth, which is um, a right-wing sort of Christian democratic coalition, uh, Luis Fernando Camacho Vaca, um, won only 14% of the vote. Uh, so I apologize for butchering all of those names mm-hmm. in Spanish. Um, and I apologize for slightly slightly mistaking uh, the nature of the um, uh, the nature of how the Bolivian election worked there. But yeah, essentially the the lefties got over half the vote and the centrists and the right wing split the rest between them in a sort of two to one ratio of centrist to right. So basically bloody good result all around. Yeah. I think it's it's worth pointing out the 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 real significance of Evo Morales when he first became leader is that Bolivia is one of the only states in the Americas um, which is majority indigenous even to this day but they had never before Morales had an indigenous leader Bolivia is an extremely unequal society along quite rigidly racial lines there is a white elite over a predominantly indigenous country who had um, previously not really had any political power before this movement it, it should be noted, by the way, that part of the reason why this has been the case is that a socialist government, uh, which was um, in power in the sort of uh, early 70s, was overthrown by, you guessed it, a CIA-backed military coup, mm-hmm. um, leading to uh, years of right-wing dictatorship, uh, in which uh, the former prime minister, socialist prime minister, was murdered by a right-wing death squad, etc., etc. You know the drill. Um so yeah, this is not like an accidental fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. When he was sworn in as president, he chose to do it at a significant indigenous site and said something along the lines of, um, well, he said it in speaking English, but it's something along the lines of... Um, here I think there's a sense in which you're always misquoting everyone by speaking English. Yeah, indeed, because I'm saying it with my voice. Um, yeah. <laughs> here ends 500 years of resistance, now begins 500 years of the fight back. Yeah. yeah. So what a line. The, the, the existence of the Morales presidency... It was an incredible victory in the first place. And it's so important. And the fact that he was kicked out by a military back coup was a disgrace. And um, their policy agenda um, was seriously radical and had a majorly positive effect on Bolivia. It's a massively successful anti-poverty program, getting people out of the slums, giving people jobs, um, building the organisations that are needed for continuing that work into the future trade unions, civic organisations, parties like MAS, which is an incredible organisation, it's it's vibrant, that kind of thing, and therefore bringing indigenous people into the political process in mass numbers for the first time, as has been borne out by these elections. They had formed the military, the Bolivian military, such that it had a, um, the school which you had to go through um, in in your training. Um, But basically the point of it was to teach people the history of colonialism in Bolivia and the history mm-hmm. of, the, of the Spanish invasion, the genocide of the rest of the Americas, racially based class society that Bolivia had had for, you know, you know, for, for centuries before that, in order, you had to go through that in order to be in the military. Extraordinarily good policy. There's, I can't remember, I'm not going to be able to list everything that they did over that long period of time because there's loads of it and it's all great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that just gives you a bit of a flavour of how yeah, definitely. important MAS as a force in Dipaveva Morales were. And the fact that, I mean, it, you always know it's going to be pretty good if the CIA tried. Um, 
Can I get but that the fact that they've yeah right, <laughs> um, and the fact that they have, after a year of extreme contentious, failed to get rid of it. They've actually MAS have gone up. <laughs> they've they've won the election by an even greater margin. It's fantastic news. <laughs> it's good to end on that upbeat note. Yes, it? it is. Yeah, that's why I deliberately left this bit to the end because I knew how horrifying some of the rest of it was going to be. Yeah. Because there are limits to the power of the empire. There are. You can resist. Victory is possible if we stick together and if we fight for it. And if we organise. And of course, improvise, adapt, overcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> improvise, oh, adapt, yeah, overcome, means... revolt. Yeah, right. We've been going for nearly four hours. Yeah. So I think, David, it's time we bring things to I think we bring things to a pleasant conclusion. Do you have anything to um, off? I don't think so. Happy Halloween. Okay. Happy Halloween. For a few days ago, for people that are listening to this. <laughs> yeah. Happy election for those who... Uh, yeah. We'll be back probably in a week or so when we might know the results depending on how long they take to trickle in, and I'm sure we'll talk more about America then. Mm-hmm. Um, David, it's been wonderful to speak to you again. Likewise. It's great to be and back. It's so good to be back. And I managed to not destroy this episode by recording it with the wrong microphone. Right. So... <laughs> Yeah. Right, well, then it only remains for me to say thank you, comrades, for your time and attention, and viva la revolution. That's that. Oh, okay. So we mentioned cheese earlier, and it's been on my mind ever since. <laughs> okay, I'm over it now. I've just eaten maggot in this apple. Ooh. I thought that was just in films. <laughs> it's just one of those things that doesn't actually happen. The rest is still good, though, so... Uh... Yeah, good. Apparently there's a thing about um, slipping on the banana peel, the whole thing, but 
it doesn't really happen very much. It's a sort of odd trope. I hope everyone's having a lovely Halloween. Yeah, indeed. I mean, obviously, by the time you hear this, it won't be Halloween anymore. And anyway, there's a good chance I'll just cut all this out. Hmm. I might stick maybe at the end. What about um? Oh, this this sort of loose time. Can you hear me? I think there might be something wrong with the sound. I'm still recording, but I don't think you can hear me. How's that? Fantastic. Okay, right. For some reason, uh, it, whilst I was away, Messenger had switched which mic it was using without me touching it. That's fun. But Audacity didn't, so it's fine. So so there's going to be a subtle section of me doing what I think is my amusing time-wasting yeah. monologue while you're actually trying to talk to me. Yeah, well, I, I was sort of doing the same thing. Um, but then you sort of you started talking about something completely different. And I thought, hang on a minute, she's probably not heard me. <laughs> no. No, I was just amusing myself. And eating an apple. <laughs> yes, I was eating some cheese. Oh. Um, because we mentioned cheese earlier, and it's been on my mind ever since. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was delights tonight. <laughs>